in the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the discourse on the foundations of mindfulness, the Buddha describes in some detail the different ways of establishing mindfulness. So there's the foundation of mindfulness of the body, of feelings, that is that quality of pleasantness, unpleasantness and neutrality, mindfulness of the mind and mental states. And the last is called mindfulness of dhammas, which is often translated as categories of experience. And that includes different of the teachings like the hindrances, the factors of enlightenment, the Four Noble Truths. In the final section of this discourse, the Buddha summarizes all of the instructions and the essential elements of the path. And he does this in the teaching of the Noble Eightfold Path. So this is what he says. And what bhikkhus is the noble truth of the way of practice leading to the end of suffering? That's a useful question. It is just this eightfold noble path, namely right view, right thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. So when I first heard these teachings, I was still in the Peace Corps in Thailand. This was in the mid-60s. And I was first reading and studying all this. The enumeration of these eight steps seemed to me almost a philosophic abstraction. It seemed to me a bit of Buddhist philosophy. And it took me a long time to even remember what all the eight steps were. In fact, it's only when I started giving a talk on them that I could actually remember them. But probably similar to your own experience, as I continued to practice and explore more fully how to live the path, this teaching of the Noble Eightfold Path took on a tremendous richness and depth. Now, in a way that dramatically transformed my life. And slowly, over time, began to see the internal logic and consistency of these steps on the path, and of how each one leads to the next, leads to the next, until they really are a template for how to live a life in the Dharma. So we begin with the first and critically important step on the path, which is right view. In Pali, it's called samaditi. Might be interesting, though, just to look in your mind right now and see if there's any response even to that term, right view. Because often in the West, and this has come up a lot in different teaching situations, in our very relativistic culture, even when we hear the term right view, there might be some resistance arising in the mind. 
you know, one might associate this right view with some kind of dogmatic belief or orthodox dogma that we have to subscribe to. Do I have right view? And what have I done? And all kinds of things come up in the mind. It's really important to understand as we hear these teachings that none of the Buddha's teachings requires or asks for a blind belief. We're always invited to come and see. And that's a phrase which is used in the chanting of the qualities of the Buddha Dharma Sangha. In the qualities of the Dharma, it has that phrase, come and see. So it's all about our own exploration, our own investigation in the teachings. Does this accord with my experience? Does it seem true in my own experience? Is it conducive to the happiness and welfare of myself, of others? So we're always testing it. And we have to hear the teachings in that light. Right view is such an important first step on the path because it sets our direction. If we are on a journey, no matter how long or difficult the journey may be, if we're heading in the right direction and we keep on going, we will inevitably and certainly reach the goal. If we're going in the right direction and we keep on going, the goal will be realized. But if we don't know the right direction, even with strong aspirations and even with strong effort, we might wander around for a long time without realizing our aim because we're not going in the right direction. There was a classic example of this in the suttas so it was a little sad, actually, sad story. But in the Buddha's times, as you might know, in India, a lot of um, spiritual seekers practice different ascetic practices. So there are two ascetic practices called the canine ascetics and the bovine ascetics. And these were people who had the view, wasn't quite right view, that if they imitated the behavior of dogs and cows, that would lead to liberation. And the sutta goes into a lot of detail of how they went about imitating them. And then they came to the Buddha and said, you know, we're doing these wonderful practices. Can you tell us where they lead? And the Buddha said, don't ask. <laughs> and they said again and again, anyway, finally, the Buddha, this is not leading where you think it's leading. You know, they're not developing, cultivating wholesome mind states. They're not cultivating liberation. They were going in a wrong direction. So this is the importance of understanding what is our direction in practice. Do we have a right view? The Buddha said that just as the dawn is the forerunner and precursor to the rising sun, 
so is right view the forerunner and precursor of the breakthrough to the Four Noble Truths. That breakthrough or realization of the Four Noble Truths, which is realization, which is awakening, right view is the precursor to that. So in one discourse particularly, the Buddha elaborates on right view. And he makes an interesting distinction between what we might call worldly or mundane right view, that is, the understandings that lead us to happiness and ease in our lives, in our worldly lives. There is a right view that leads to that kind of happiness. He talked of supramundane right view, and that's the right view that leads to liberation. So this is how the Buddha described it. And what bhikkhus is right view? Right view, I say, is twofold. There is right view that is affected by taints, partaking of merit, ripening in acquisitions, and there is right view that is noble, taintless, supramundane, a factor of the path. So this week, tonight, and next week also, I'd like to discuss aspects of this twofold right view because they have such important consequences for our lives. The teachings on worldly or mundane right view very pragmatically acknowledges that for those of us, those few of us, who are not yet fully liberated, our wholesome actions are often in the realm of desire, of accumulating wholesome merit, of aiming for particular happy results in our lives. So even though these are wholesome actions, you know, they are the accumulation of merit. They do bring good results. It's still in the realm of acquisition rather than on the side of the abandonment of all desires. And so that's why it's called mundane right view or worldly right view. It shows us how to live in the world. So I find this aspect of the Buddhist teachings particularly relevant for us as lay people. You know, we're practicing in our lives, engage with the world, engage in different kinds of relationships in work. It shows us how we can live in a way that brings happiness and ease rather than difficulties or stress. You know, and it's just another example of the Buddha's great pragmatism. He understood so completely all the different levels that we aspire to. As lay people, we are living in the world. Can we live with ease? Can we live with happiness? And can we also aspire to full awakening? There are right views for each of those. So there's a traditional expression of mundane right view. 
which is found in the suttas. And in these few brief phrases, the Buddha points to a wealth of Dharma understanding. It's like four or five phrases that when unpacked opens up a whole world of understanding how we can live wisely. Some aspects will seem very obvious, while others may be outside the realm of our immediate experience. But it's worth listening to and staying open to what might be different ways of understanding the world. Even if they're not in our immediate experience, it might enlarge our understanding. Okay, so this is the teaching the Buddha gave on mundane or worldly right view. And what bhikkhus is right view that is affected by the taints, partaking of merit, ripening in acquisitions. So these are the different phrases. There is what is given and what is offered and what is sacrificed. There is fruit and result of good and bad actions. There is this world and the other world. There is mother and father. There are beings who are reborn spontaneously. There are in the world good and virtuous recluses and Brahmins who have realized for themselves by direct knowledge and declare this world and the other world. This is right view, affected by taints, partaking of merit, ripening in the acquisitions. So these were a little, few little pithy statements, which upon first hearing them, I think, what does this mean? <laughs> What's the relevance to my life? So I'd like to unpack them a little bit, because I think there's a tremendous relevance to how we live. All of these specific declarations rest on the framework of understanding the law of karma. And this is the fundamental and essential understanding that all of our volitional actions, which are many, innumerable through the day, all of our volitional actions bear fruit. And the fruit is conditioned by the motivation behind the action. Now, there's so much emphasis in the practice of living in the present, paying attention in the present, which, of course, is the path of practice. But there's a larger understanding that we need to bring to awareness of the present. And that is that our actions and the motivations of our actions have the power, the energy, to bear fruit in the future. So they're all like seeds. We need to understand this so we pay attention to our actions. And as I'm sure all of you are familiar with, actions rooted in greed, in hatred, in ignorance, are the seeds of unpleasant future results. Actions based in non-greed, generosity, non-hatred, loving-kindness, non-delusion, wisdom, 
bear the seeds of happiness. This principle, this understanding of the law of karma is so fundamental to the teachings and it's so far-reaching in its implications that the Buddha emphasized it over and over again. This is interwoven through all the many texts you know, of the Buddha's discourses and it was emphasized by many enlightened beings all the way up to the present time. Now we've mentioned, I think, the first lines of the Dhammapada, where the Buddha says, mind is the forerunner of all things. If we speak or act with an impure mind, suffering follows, like the foot of the ox follows the wheel of the ox cart. Do you have a picture in your mind of an ox cart? No, it's the wheel following the foot. (laughs) I had the ox behind the cart. (laughs) And if we think mind is the forerunner of all things, you know, if we speak or act with a wholesome mind, happiness follows like a shadow that never leaves. So the Buddha is saying it very directly. The great Tibetan, the great Indian adept who brought Buddhism to Tibet, Padmasambhava, you know, had amazing vision of the Dharma and of emptiness. He said that though my vision of the Dharma is as vast as the sky, my attention to the law of karma is as fine as a grain of barley flour. So we need to be watchful not to get lost in kind of either the concept or the glorious aspiration for realizing emptiness without acknowledging that within that is the working of the law of karma. We really need to pay attention on a very fine level. His Holiness the Dalai Lama made a very interesting statement about this. Given how important the wisdom of emptiness is in the Buddha's teachings, the Dalai Lama said that if he had to choose between teaching about emptiness and teaching about karma, he would teach about karma. That's a really important indication of just how significant this teaching is for happiness and ease in our lives. And I think the best expression of it, I really love this, is by the Korean Zen master Sung San, San Sanim. He was talking about both emptiness and karma. He said, there's no right and no wrong, but right is right and wrong is wrong. So even as we develop the insight into the emptiness of all phenomena, there's no right and no wrong, but right is right and wrong is wrong. So we need to integrate these two levels of understanding. Of course, it's not enough to simply know this conceptually or intellectually or even to agree with it. Oh yeah, that sounds right. Karma is a good thing. It's not enough. That's not what transforms our lives. We need to practice applying this understanding in our lives. As we're about to act, 
or when thoughts or emotions are predominant? Do we remember to investigate and reflect on our motivation? Before our actions, do we stop and think, where is this action leading? Is it where I want to go? Is this motivation skillful or unskillful? Do I want to cultivate it? Do I want to abandon it? So the beauty of being on a retreat in quite an undistracted environment, we have the chance to explore this, to investigate, because in the busyness of our lives without training, very difficult to catch us. We, we forget to look. We just act out the patterns of our conditioning. So in the Buddha's description of mundane right view held in this context of understanding the law of karma, he elaborated a few particular areas of investigation, investigation and practice. So the first statement in that list of phrases, there is what is given, offered, and sacrificed. So what does that mean? It refers to the moral and karmic significance of generosity. There is what is given, offered, sacrificed. He's talking about the power of the act, of any act of giving. The Buddha emphasized this in his very well-known teaching when he said that if we knew as he did the fruit the power of generosity, the karmic result of generosity, we would not let a single meal pass without sharing. I mean, that's how strong a force it is in the unfolding of our lives. So a question for us in our very fast-paced individualistic culture, the society of ours, can we actually make generosity a practice? Can we cultivate it? Can we make it strong in our lives? One way that I found to be very helpful and inspiring for myself, and really transforming of the way I relate to my life situation and the people I come in contact with, I've made it a practice to try and act on all those moments of generous impulse. You know, many times in the course of our lives, we we have a generous impulse, we have a generous thought. So if I have a thought to give, whether it's something just small, it's a small gesture, something small, or something quite big, if I have the thought, I try to practice to actually act on it at the appropriate time, rather than let the thought simply pass by or to start second-guessing myself. Oh, maybe that's too much. Maybe I shouldn't do that. Or maybe I should hold on or whatever. If the thought comes to give, I try to act on it and do it. And it's had amazing results. 
acts of generosity obviously are of benefit to the recipient, but they also are of tremendous benefit to ourselves, both in the moment and also as future results. One of the immediate blessings of generosity and of practicing it is that it feels so good in the moment. Because what's going on in those moments of generosity? There are associated factors of metta, of loving kindness. You know, when we're giving something, that generosity is motivated by a feeling of friendliness towards the person we're giving it to. There's the associated factor of renunciation, because we're actually giving something up. And so there's the lightness that comes from those moments of renunciation. And if we consciously reflect on this whole process and the benefit of it, we're also cultivating wisdom. So the wisdom factor gets strong. All of this is contained in a simple act of giving. That's why it feels so good. The Buddha would often begin the series of graduated teachings. First teaching would often be on generosity. Because when we hear it, even, even just in talking about it, and I hope I'm conveying this, or if you think about people who are generous, you know, how does that make you feel? It's, it gladdens the heart. It lightens the heart because it's such a beautiful quality. We love being around people who are generous. And people like being around us when we are generous. So it's just good. (laughs) It's just good. And it's good from the very beginning. And it's not hard to do. We just have to consciously take it on as a practice. Okay, so the second phrase in the description of mundane right view is there is fruit and result of good and bad actions. So we've already discussed this in terms of understanding karma. So there is no way to overestimate the importance of these teachings, that actions bring results. Because when we practice this understanding in our lives, it allows us to engage creatively in the unfolding of our lives. Because we are the heirs of our own actions. When we understand it and practice it, it's like we're artists and the medium is our life. And we can shape it and we can craft it and we can create something beautiful because we understand that our actions, moment after moment, are bringing results. So there's no way to overestimate the importance. We begin to take a much greater sense of responsibility for our actions. So the next aspect of mundane right view says, there is this world and the other world. So this is a statement about rebirth and other planes of existence. For most of us, 
probably this is outside the realm of our direct experience. And it's also outside the mainstream of Western thought. So it may be difficult to sign on for these aspects of the teachings. And we hear about rebirth and we hear about all the different planes of existence. For most of us as Westerners, I think there's usually quite a bit of skepticism. When I was studying with Manindraji in Bodh Gaya, he loved to talk about this stuff. And so he would talk about all the deva realms and the seven kinds of devas of sense pleasures and all the Brahma realms, and he'd go on and on and on. And I actually loved listening to it. But there was a, a lot of the other Westerners were kind of rolling their eyes. And, and Manindra would always end his little rap on this. You don't have to believe this. It's true, but you don't have to believe it. <laughs> so for myself, there was a very gradual process of opening myself to consider these possibilities. Because I came to Dharma practice from a study of Western philosophy. I studied philosophy in college, and I had no belief at all, and I probably hadn't even heard much about past lives and future lives and realms of existence. So this was a completely foreign idea for me. Over time, though, several things began to open me to, hmm, is this possible? You know, I began to consider the possibility of them. One of the first things that opened me to the possibility happened just as I put these meditation practices, you know, as I started practicing them, and I saw that so much of what the Buddha taught actually did resonate with my experience. You know, it, I could test a good part of it for myself. Oh, all of that's true, seems true. Well, maybe this part that I don't quite experience yet, well, if he was right about this much, maybe I should consider the other part. You know? And so that just began, I began reflecting a little more. I began to practice what the poet Coleridge called the willing suspension of disbelief. Because I saw that just as we can become attached, very attached to our beliefs, we can become very attached to our disbeliefs and hold on to them quite tightly. The second thing that opened me was being with teachers like Deepama. And I think we've talked about a little bit about her and we'll undoubtedly talk more. This wonderful woman, a Bengali woman, extraordinary yogi, very interesting life story. Not only did she attain very high levels of enlightenment, but also through the concentration practices, all the different psychic powers that are mentioned in the texts. So in being with her, and she was such an extraordinary being, and she was saying that she herself had experienced all of this. So out of my great trust in her, again, well, Maybe I should consider it. 
of course, this is not all, at all a scientific proof of rebirth. So I'm not suggesting that it is. But it just opened my heart a little bit to thinking about it, considering it. So in this same vein, in our first teacher training program here at IMS, we had a young Sri Lankan man, his name was Dhamma Rowan, who I had met in Sri Lanka years before when he was still a young child. He was quite an unusual person. At the age of two and three, before he could read, before he could write, he started spontaneously chanting whole Buddhist discourses in Pali, very complex Buddhist suttas in Pali. And he was doing it in a melody, in a way of chanting that was, didn't even exist in Sri Lanka at that time. And his parents didn't know these chants. It just started coming spontaneously at two and three. As he got a little older and started meditating, he began to remember some of his past lives, and one of them was as a monk, a chanting monk, in the time of Buddha Gosa, who was a great 6th century commentator of the Buddhist tradition. He, he compiled this great commentary, The Path of Purification. So Dhamma Ruin remembered being a monk with Buddha Gosa, you know, chanting these suttas, and he said that's where all of this chanting had come from when he was still such a young child. So I thought it'd be interesting. His parents taped some of these chants. So I thought I'd play just a few minutes of him chanting as a very young child some of these texts. It's quite beautiful. Two and three years old. Never heard them. Bhante Bhagavaya Nayasma 
So again, this isn't scientific proof, but it does raise some interesting questions. <laughs> like, where would that come from? It's, so it just makes one stop and think, and maybe there are other you know, aspects of what's going on that we don't yet quite understand. It's just a way of opening to possibilities. It's not a question of necessarily believing, but just, you know, we expand the possibilities of what may be uh, going on. So each of us has our own relationship you know, to these teachings on rebirth and other planes of existence. And it's important to emphasize that awakening and freedom does not depend on this belief. Whether we believe it or don't believe it, we can understand the causes of suffering and free ourselves from those causes. But as the great transmission of Buddha Dharma happens, and we're in the midst of it, it's really quite quite an amazing phenomenon, this transmission of these teachings from Asian cultures to our own. I think it's helpful not to immediately dismiss what is beyond our limited personal experience. To simply keep an open mind about other possibilities. So regarding mundane right view, We've discussed the aspects of karma, of generosity, of rebirth, and other planes of existence. The next phrase in the teachings, there is mother and father. Okay, highlights not the obvious fact that we're all born of our parents, but that there is a special karmic relationship to our parents with attendant responsibilities. Now this is an interesting teaching for us in the West. Because perhaps in Asia as well, but I think maybe particularly here, there are sometimes and maybe even often complications and difficulties in the relationship with our parents. You know, the Dalai Lama's often repeated teaching that at some point all beings have been our mothers. It doesn't necessarily evoke the same feeling in us as it does in him. (laughs) All beings have been my mother. (laughs) Regardless, though, of our present relationship, whatever it may be, the Buddha is pointing out that there is a karmic debt for this great gift of this precious human birth. So this is an important karmic connection. And that the best possible repayment of that debt is to somehow connect our parents with the teachings, with the Dharma, or at least try to plant a few seeds of the understanding within them. But of course, great skill and sensitivity is needed with this. And how each of us might go about it will vary 
greatly depending on the particular relationships we have. And almost certainly proselytizing is not going to help. You know, so that's not a very good strategy. The best communication almost always is not what we say, but how we are. That's what gets communicated. And if there is already an open and loving relationship and communication, there might be real possibilities, you know, for Dharma discussion and maybe even an encouragement to practice. But if communication is difficult, as it often is, the first steps might be ones we take within ourselves to simply cultivate less judgment, be more accepting of our parents just as they are. Now, over these many years of teaching, I've met with many people where there was tremendous conflict and even trauma in their family relationships. But it's been amazing to me to hear many stories of how over time, years of practice and a tremendous amount of patience even when there was some pretty intense trauma involved, the relationships were transformed just through the power of the aspiration to work on it. The the relations were transformed into one of metta, into one of compassion. And these difficulties are not limited to our modern age. Even Sariputra, who was the chief disciple of the Buddha, second only to the Buddha in his wisdom, had mother problems. (laughs) He was born into a Brahmin family. He had three brothers and three sisters, all of his siblings, three brothers, three sisters, all of whom eventually ordained and became arhans. But his mother was a staunch, staunch Brahmin you know, and very, very attached to the Brahmanic rituals. And she remained hostile to the Buddha and his teachings. So this describes a little visit Sariputta made to his mother. Once when the Venerable Sariputta was in his home village of Nalaka with a large retinue of monks, he came to his mother's house in the course of his alms round. His mother gave him a seat and served him with food. But while she did so, she she uttered abusive words. Oh, you eater of others' leavings, she said. When you fail to get leavings of sour rice gruel, you go from house to house among strangers, licking the leavings off the backs of ladles. And so it was for this that you gave up 80 crores of wealth and became a monk. You have ruined me. Now, go and eat. (laughs) Likewise, when she was serving food to the monks, she said, So, you are the men who have made my son your page boy. Go on, eat now. (laughs) I can just hear it. (laughs) So, there was (laughs) some problems. But many years later, as Sariputta was contemplating his own imminent death. He he knew when he was going to die. And and he thought of his mother, who, although 
was the mother of seven arhans, which is I mean, quite extraordinary. Uh, she still had no faith at all in, in the teachings in the Buddha. But through his eye of wisdom, you know, Saraputta was this great being, he also saw that she had the necessary conditions for attaining stream entry, the first stage of enlightenment, but that only he would be able to bring it about. So he understood this. So he returned to his mother's house and it said to his birth chamber, you know, where he was born. And on the last evening of his life, he went home to die. On the last evening of his life, it said that all of these celestial beings, the devas and the brahmas, came down to pay homage to Sariputta, this great enlightened being, the second only to the Buddha. So this seemed to impress his mother. <laughs> you know, that all these devas and brahmas were coming to bow down to her son. And she thought, if all these celestial beings are paying homage to my son, what great virtues must the Buddha have? So in seeing that, her heart softened, Sariputta gave a final discourse, and she became a stream enterer, bound for full awakening. So we may not have celestial beings come down when we visit our parents. <laughs> maybe, but maybe not. But this story does point just to the importance the Buddha gave to this very fundamental relationship. It may be an easy one, it may be one that is not easy, that is filled with difficulty, that takes great patience and great forbearance. But it's worth reflecting on how might we help, you know, just offer or convey or communicate some aspect you know, of these blessings of the Dharma which have touched all of us. It's why we're here. And even if our parents have already passed away, you know, it's also possible to share our merit. And you might do that at the beginning of a sitting or the end of a sitting or the end of a day. You know, we share the merit of our practice with them, the merit of our wholesome actions, dedicating it to the welfare, the happiness, the awakening of our parents. And depending on circumstances, this itself, this dedication of merit, can have a very powerful effect. So the last two statements in worldly right view, that there are beings who are born, reborn spontaneously in other realms, and that there are in the world wise and virtuous people who have realized the truth through their own direct experience. Okay. Regarding the first, spontaneous rebirth in other realms, we've spoken of just the possibility of staying open you know, to considering that possibility, even if it's beyond what we know for ourselves right now. It's the last aspect of mundane right view that I find particularly interesting and relevant in our Western culture, where the Buddha says that there are wise and virtuous people who have realized truth 
through direct experience. When we look about at our society, our Western culture, we don't really find that wisdom is a great cultural value. You know, what do we value as a society? We value wealth. We value talent. We value beauty. To some extent, at least in some circles, we might value intelligence. But when's the last time you saw a magazine cover, the wisest person of the year? (laughs) You know, we don't even think in those terms. In India, if you went into any village and just asked the question, you know, who's the wise elder? They would be able to point you to somebody. They may or may not actually be wise, <laughs> but it would be a, va- a recognized value. You know, it would, that would be a question that people would respond to. If you go down to downtown Barry and ask, who's the wise elder in Barry? They would look at you like, what are you talking about? Because somehow we haven't incorporated the idea of wisdom as being something important. In some way, I think our egalitarian value, which of course has brought so much benefit, but it can sometimes diminish the understanding that there actually are people wiser than ourselves. I remember quite distinctly, I was, I was young, I, I was like in my early 20s, when that thought first occurred to me. Because it just, we weren't brought up with the idea of wisdom and there are wise people. And it was like a light bulb going, oh, yeah, there are some people who might be wiser than I am. That was a great discovery. people from who we can actually learn something about the Dharma, about how to live in a skillful way. There are people with this wisdom. And acknowledging this also opens us up to acknowledging or being open to wisdom from unexpected sources. Now, it's not always in the conventional, some conventional way of connecting with wise people sometimes. Just the people we meet in the course of our lives, if we're attuned to it, if we're attuned to the possibility that people have varying degrees of wisdom, we listen for it, you know, in the people we meet. And very often it's quite surprising, you know, and unexpected, where we really see, yeah, these people have learned something from their lives. They have something to teach us. Well, this is a powerful change in how we go through our lives and how we relate to others. And a very important implication of this, recognizing that there are genuinely wise beings in the world, awakened beings in the world, it reaffirms our understanding that this is possible for ourselves as well. 
You know, because we're seeing, yes, this is a human potential, and we all share in that. So we can practice these various aspects of worldly right view or mundane right view in different ways. So some are obvious, like the practice of generosity, like paying attention to the motivations behind our actions, realizing that they have consequences. Other aspects of this right view may not be immediately apparent. So we might want to experiment. It's like we try them on for size, seeing how they might affect the quality of our lives. So just as an example, what would it be like? What would it mean for your life if you actually open to the possibility of rebirth and other planes of existence? Would it change in any way how you live or the choices you make? Would it affect the stress or ease in your life? So it's just kind of an experiment. It's, it's like a thought experiment, you know, and living it out a bit and just, as I say, trying it on for size. Well, what would this mean for how I live? For myself, in doing this, and just entertaining the idea, yes, this might be true. There might be rebirth, you know, in other planes. I've noticed a significant change in how I live. Within the realm of worldly happiness, because of this understanding, I no longer f- feel the compelling need to fulfill every desire or accomplish every goal this time around. You know, life is going by so fast, it increasingly feels like a long weekend. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just really speeding up. And if I don't become an expert skier, or learn the languages I want to learn, or learn to sing, <laughs> or whatever the desire may be, well, if it doesn't happen in this life, maybe it'll happen next life. And this way of seeing things, it both takes the pressure off. Okay, it's okay. And it allows me to prioritize what seems most important without thinking that I'm missing out on something. So I just let go of a lot of anxiety about having to do everything made a lot more space, a lot more ease, a lot more relaxation. So you might just play with it. You know, what would it mean if you happen to have that belief? Not that you should believe it, it's just, it's just kind of playing, does it have any effect on your life or not? You know, and in this way, it just gets interesting uh, as we explore these different possibilities. Next week, I'd like to go on in this little two-part series from mundane right view to supra-mundane right view. And we'll see as we explore that, that the real freedom is not 
in simply living with ease and learning to live a bit more happily in our lives, which we can do, but that real freedom comes from letting go of the deep-rooted tendency of craving and from the deeply-rooted belief in the concept of self. With super-mundane right view, we cut through the Gordian knot of self and we begin to experience our lives and who we are in a radically different way. So in one discourse, the Buddha said there are two conditions for the arising of right view of both kinds, the worldly and the supermundane. Two conditions for its arising. The voice of another and wise attention. You've just spent an hour listening to the voice of another. (laughs) The wise attention is up to you. So let's sit for a moment or two. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.